You may have noticed that I'm not Dan. I, I kind of actually just realized that at this moment right now, so just stick with me. I do go mostly to first service, so you might have to pretend that I'm a real person. Um, but I am, in fact, real. I just usually am in first service here. So you may wonder what I'm doing up here. Uh, truth is, with Dan and Jason going off and gallivanting wherever they're at, and uh, Tamara being superwoman, and spending all week saving kittens from tall trees, um, they needed somebody to do the sermon. What I think they were looking for was somebody with the mind and beard of Dan, the muscle and heart of Jason, and the hair and wisdom of Tamara. In other words, they think they were looking for somebody like this. <laughs> Takes a little bit to process, doesn't it? Well, they couldn't find that person, so instead they're actually stuck with this. Anyway, enjoy. <laughs> Um, I will say that today is a little bit of a risk for you today because I went to Starbucks just before service to finish prepping, and I looked at my account balance, and it was $6.66. So just be very wary of whatever, whatever I say here. Uh, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll read our theme verse. So if the sun sets you free, you will be really free indeed. All right, have a seat. It is the 4th of July weekend. You may have known that from staying up, waking up in the middle of the night to M80s going off. Um, but it is the day that we celebrate freedom, meet fireworks, meet fireworks, fireworks, meet, meet, and fireworks. So how many of you have ever used some sort of fireworks? Yeah, you've used fireworks, good. How many of you have done something tremendously stupid with fireworks? Good, yeah, keep your hands up. I need to know who not to babysit my kids. That's really important. Um, I, long time ago, I'm, I'm a long-time teacher, um, probably 40, 50 years by now, and uh, it was a joke. I'm actually 12. Uh, I, I was a, I've been a long-time teacher, and you know, when I first started teaching, I actually taught a semester of chemistry. I think after I got done with that semester, they said, no more, nay, nay, you shall never do this again. Uh, but I taught this chemistry class, and everybody knows that the point of a chemistry class is to make things explode, Right? I mean, literally, it's the only reason anybody takes chemistry. Oh, there'll be explosions. Excellent. I shall take that class. So I decided, as the chemistry teacher, having access to all these chemicals that I just normally wouldn't have access to, to take full advantage of it. I did explosions almost every single day. One particular day, I decided that I was going to make flash powder. This is in, in honor of the 4th of July. I'm going to tell this story. I decided to make flash powder. Um, it's very exciting stuff. You know, it goes off, explodes, it blinds you. Students love it. I think they love not being able to see for the next class. I think that might have been, sorry, I can't learn, I can't see. Anyway, so I spent a whole day exploding this flash powder. On the very, at the, during the very last class, I ground up the flash powder, and I poured it in the container, and I lit it up, and flat, you know, bang, it went off, and uh, I can't see. Kids are laughing, crying. It's great. Um, so after that, they were like, can you do it again? Okay, sure. I mean, if I have to, yeah, I'll do it again. I've done it seven times already today, but it never gets, I never get tired of this. So I grind the stuff up. I pour it in the, in the container. Unbeknownst to me, there was a small ember still glowing in the bottom of that container. And beknownst to me, uh, flash powder has a very low ignition point. And so I poured the flash powder in, and it went off. Bam! Leapt up into the container I was holding, exploded, and I looked down, and my whole hand was just completely white. And it burns at a high temperature. So I had this, and I go, 
okay, class is done for the day. Go do your homework. So they went to do their homework. Are you okay? I'm fine. So the point here is that did I have the complete freedom to explode things as much as I like to? Yes. Should I have taken advantage of that freedom? Probably not. Did I enjoy having my, my hand nearly blown off? No, especially not when the doctor looked at me with those, you're an idiot eyes. Rod Dreher, the author of The Benedict Option, argues that in our society today, we believe that freedom is the liberation from anything, anything that is not freely chosen by the autonomous individual. A lot of syllables in that sentence. I'm going to read it again. Liberation from anything that is not freely chosen by the autonomous individual. So let's, let's unpack that and see what he means. He seems to think that we think, and I think this is probably generally true, that freedom is freedom from all constraints. So according to this definition, freedom should never give you up, never let you down, never going to run around and desert you. Sorry, that's Rick Astley. Sorry. So he, Dreher is actually saying something very important about, about how we tend to think about freedom. In other words, what he is saying is that freedom, in our minds oftentimes, is the ability to do anything, to never be kept back from anything, to never be kept from doing what we'd like, and that really only absolute unfettered freedom is good. Um, so, I mean, we, we all agree with that to some extent, right? We, we know that there are some rules. We need some minimal constraints. For example, it wouldn't be good to live in a society in which anybody could kill anybody for any reason. Probably wouldn't like that. But we do generally believe that the fewer rules we have, the better. Unless the rules for somebody else, in which case we can have as many rules as we like. Um, but this sounds like a great idea until you really think about it. I mean, you think about how, I mean, we raise our children. I have three kids. That's about as high as I can count. Uh, three kids, and what we try to do is give them unfettered freedom as much as possible. So if one of our sons says, you know, Dad, um, can I have some candy before going to bed? What we generally say is, absolutely, son, we don't want to limit your freedom. Eat as much candy as you like. And so he does. He eats candy until he throws up. We are really good parents. Some of you are laughing nervously. Does he really do that? Maybe. Okay, uh, so here's the thing. When we're a kid, we want all sorts of freedom, right? We want freedom to do whatever we want. And we're, when we're adult, we kind of like that too. We have that same exact idea. I mean, it's our freedom to quit our job if we don't like it and find another one. It's our freedom to choose between a thousand different cell phones and pick one and then walk out of the store and instantly regret it because there's a thousand other ones that you could have gotten. Um, it's the freedom to buy a new car. Um, to, but here's the thing. It's also a freedom that we have to ignore our spouse and kids and go hang out with our friends or work longer um, because our family shouldn't really hold us back from our dreams. It's a freedom to flit from desire to desire and never really find fulfillment. It means that we have the freedom, right? And we think this is a good thing in a sense to watch on average five hours of television a day or to spend about two hours a day on social media and get a little bit twitchy when a real live human talks to us, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you, I'm socializing right now. Why are you talking to me? Okay, that's just me. I'm sorry. I'm a terrible person. Uh, but, but what we're looking at here is a situation where unfettered freedom isn't necessarily a good thing. Unfettered freedom doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. So in the context of the verse that we just read, it sounds like the sunset is free. That person is free indeed. We have unfettered freedom. 
But we can see that unfettered freedom isn't necessarily the best thing for us. So maybe we should look at the context here to figure out what Jesus is actually saying. So if we get that up on the screen, I'll read it to you. So here's what Jesus says. He says, Then Jesus said to the Judeans who had believed him, If you continue to follow my teachings, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're, uh, we are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. How can you say, you will become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So there's a phrase, and you may have heard it, it's context is king. So context is king. In other words, where something is determines the interpretation of the thing. For example, if I told you that some years back, I, was, I stood back in awe as a fountain of water erupted from the earth in just a majestic stream, you might assume that I was at Yellowstone Park looking at Old Faithful. But if I tell you that I was in my son's room, my infant son's room, changing his diaper, you might have a slightly different interpretation of what was going on. Context is king. But believe me, based on my changing of his diapers, it, Old Faithful would be a good descriptor of what happened right there. Um, that means he did that a lot to me. Okay, so the point is, where, where something is has much, as much to do with its meaning as the thing itself. So take, take this verse, for example. If we just read, the, if the sun sets you free, you'll be really free without the verse surrounding it, we might be inclined to be very excited. Yes, okay, yeah, I am truly free. But you, you look at that context here, and we have to realize that freedom doesn't mean unfettered freedom. It doesn't mean freedom the way we're maybe inclined to uh, understand it. So let's take a look back in time a bit at what was happening here. Jesus was talking to a group of Judeans, and these are practicing Jews who likely come from a long line of practicing Jews who come from a long line of practicing Jews who come from Abraham. And they're really good at what they do, and they got the heritage to prove it. They've never been slaves. At least, they don't think of themselves in the way, that way. You know, sure, there was the whole Egypt thing, there was the Assyrian thing, there was the Babylonian thing, there was the Philistine. So, well, they don't think of themselves in that way. They were definitely enslaved at points in history, but they considered themselves to be free because they're descendants of Abraham, who was free. People could physically enslave them, but their spirits were ultimately free. So they had a few setbacks, but they don't think of themselves as slaves. Um, the reason for this is that they're really they're doing the right things. What they're doing is they're going to church on Saturday, they're practicing the Ten Commandments, and the hundreds of other rules and laws that they've established. And they've basically been good people. And being good people for them meant obeying the law. Ancient Judaism taught that knowledge of the law is what set people free. So if they knew the law, they must be free. But here comes Jesus saying, nah, in fact, you are slaves, and you need to be set free. So this is sort of like somebody coming along and saying, you know what, I know that you are a Packer fan, and you come from a long, long line of Packer fans. Um, tracing all the way back to your great-great-great-grandfather, Vince Lombardi. But guess what? You are actually a Bears fan. Oh. I know. <laughs> this is actually worse than that, what Jesus is saying. It's hard, it's hard to believe. Um, 
It's not hard to believe that my in-laws are going to kill me once I'm done with this sermon for this blasphemy against the bears. But anyway, it's like that, but far, far worse, right? He's saying something that you truly believe about yourself that's integrated part of your spirit. It is your identity. is in fact not true. You're not free. You're a slave. So this brings up the question, what in the Charles Dickens is freedom anyway? After all, Jesus is telling people that freedom is not the ability to do as you wish. So you might think, okay, uh, maybe then freedom is freedom from the law, right? Freedom is not having all these rules and laws to constrain us and tell us what to do. And you might be right, ish. Because I know that Paul talks about how you know, there's freedom from the law, freedom from all these things, and he is absolutely 100% correct. But if you're looking at this context, there's a weird thing going on here where Jesus is making clear that freedom is an unfettered freedom. So if you look at, if we talk about those verses again, what you're seeing is that at least two things. One, that Jesus' teachings will allow you to know the truth. We know that the truth will set you free. We know that sin is slavery. Um, but we know that in this context, these people are following law. So the law is not freedom either. Right? So we have a situation where we're very, it's very ambiguous about what freedom actually is. And again, if we were following our cultural inclinations, we might be inclined to say, okay, well, freedom, again, is unfettered, um, the unfettered ability to do as we wish. But we know that Jesus wants us to follow him. How many of you tend to think that obedience is freedom or that following is freedom? I know that when at work, you know, when my boss tells me to do something, um, my first impulse isn't to sigh and say, thank you for the freedom to do what you want. I mean, feel that, feel that way? No? Okay. So my first impulse is typically to roll up my sleeves, ball my fist into, into balls, and then walk away quietly and weep in the corner. I'm a little weak. <laughs> I hide my pain. Um, but you're all much better, better than I am, right? So you, you're probably big in the whole, like, obedience is freedom thing. But if you think about it, that is really odd, right? How, how in the world can obedience lead to freedom when obedience seems like the opposite of freedom? I mean, I feel most free when I'm not obeying anyone and when I can do what I want. So how in the world does this truth that we have to follow make us actually free when following truth is actually a sort of obedience. So let me give you one example um, of what I think stands at the core of what Jesus is saying. So James 1.22 tells us that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers also. In other words, we shouldn't just hear the law, know the law. That's not, gonna, that's not good enough. We actually, actually have to do it. And he says that true religion is actually caring for the orphans, caring for the widows, and keeping yourself unstained by the world. So in other words, freedom... Um, the sort of freedom we're talking about isn't simply doing, avoiding doing bad things and being free of bad things, but being bound to good things and treating each other with respect and love. So how does a person actually do that? You may have heard of Aristotle. He's a football player. For, no, never mind. He was a Greek philosopher living about 2,500 years ago amongst many other Greek philosophers who are names that are nearly impossible to say. Aristotle, though, he taught, he taught on, on ethics, he taught on virtue, um, and talking about being a good person. So here's what he said about becoming good. So maybe this will help us. He says, you become good, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, because you become good by thinking like a good man thinks, while feeling what a good man feels, and doing what a good man does. 
Thanks, Aristotle. So in other words, to become good, you have to be a good person. How does that, how does that, how does that work? You might as well have just said, uh, therefore, by the way, good luck, because you're never going to pull that off. <laughs> so this sort of thinking really does make us wonder, you know, how do you become good if it's that hard? Now, fortunately, as Christians, we have an answer to that. Christ has come to live in us, and we know that he is a good man who thinks the way a good man should think, who feels the way a good man should feel, and does what a good man should do. Okay, so that person is dwelling in us. So for us to be that good person, to obey him, isn't as much a challenge because he's already there. He is the model, and he's part of us. Do you see that gives us some measure of hope in this whole process of obeying him and following him? So Jesus says, you know, so Jesus is capable, it lives within us, he transforms us, and teaches us how to think, feel, and act. So Jesus says, follow his teaching, and that'll set us free. So what sort of teachings? Well, a good one to start with would be the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's, that is hard. It's really hard. See, I'm a dad. I may have said that. I have four children. I said three earlier. I was testing to see if you're listening. I actually don't know. I've, I think it's three. Uh, my wife's there. It's three. Okay, so, um, so being a dad is, is an interesting phenomenon because being a dad is about 50% missing your, your kids when you're away and 50% missing being away when you're with your kids. <laughs> so there's this very like altruistic, selfish thing going on where whenever we are home, you're kind of like, I truly wish I wasn't here right now. I just want some time to myself. Um, so, but one day I was hanging out with my kids, and they're probably crawling all over me and hitting me. Um, and I was being annoyed with them for loving me, which is just a weird sort of thing. And it occurred to me, though, that with all my irritation, when I was giving myself to them, I was actually much, much happier than when I was selfishly kind of keeping myself from them. But it's really hard to treat them the way I want to be treated. But the more that I treated them selflessly, the more I thought about them and their needs, the easier it became and the happier I became. Ever, everybody experienced that phenomenon where you're like, giving something to someone actually made you happier than keeping it for yourself? So, you know, I think about all the, selfish, the selfishest people you can think, think of, right? You, you know, Scrooge McDuck, Ebenezer Scrooge, a lot of Scrooges. Uh, you know, Elon Musk, who won't respond to your emails requesting for a million dollars just one time. That jerk. <laughs> but you compare those people to, say, Pastor Jason, who is out on Sundays after a, a rain up to his knees, pumping water out and smiling for some reason. He might be half aquatic, I'm not sure. But in any case, he, he like, is so happy with serving. And you might think, well, that might just be because he's a better person than us. But I suspect it's because he is practicing obedience to this principle of giving this thing that ultimately makes us more happy. So you think of this question, answer this question, you know, who do you think is happier, the person who gives or the person who receives? Well, researchers from the, there's an interesting study um, by researchers in the University of Zurich. Now, you know it's a really good study because it comes from Zurich, right? I'm not sure what that means, but Zurich seems like they probably got it right. Okay, so they did this research. They gave 50 people $100 to spend for a few weeks. And some of you are like, yes, I would participate in that study. That's a good study. But half these people were asked to commit to spending money on themselves. Again, some of you are like, amen, I will do that. New shoes, new video game, new 
new thing. And then the other half were asked to spend money on somebody else that they knew. So the thing is, they made these choices, right? And after this time was up, they, they did uh, another study on them. They, they discovered that the people who agreed to spend money on other people tended to make more generous decisions uh, throughout the experiment compared to those who agreed to spend money on themselves. But furthermore, they had more interaction in the parts of their brain associated with altruism and happiness. And they reported um, overall higher levels of happiness after the experiment was over. So in other words, there's something built into us that wants to follow the principles that were laid out in the gospel. There's something in us that knows that if we do these things, ultimately it leads to our fulfillment, our contentment. But on the other hand, there's a part of it that just wants to do what we want. And there's kind of the struggle that we have. The thing is, it's our nature to be bound to rules. It doesn't matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how much you claim, I'm not listening to any, you've, we've all got rules. So for example, if I said, okay, we're done right now, go home, and I stopped right and walked off the stage, probably most of you would sit there awkwardly wondering, what is going on right now? Does he really mean I can go? Because the sermon doesn't seem like it's over, right? We've got these rules. You could choose to leave, but it would be difficult because we're obedient to these things. So there's no really true unfettered freedom in the sense that we don't follow any rules. It's a question of what rules we follow and whether those rules actually lead us to some measure of happiness and whether those rules are ultimately good. So following obeying Jesus, obeying the rules that he set before us, um, is the sort of freedom that Jesus has, has in mind. It's the sort of freedom that doesn't lead to misery, but it actually leads to, to happiness. So to know Jesus is to be set free, to actually be happy. Once our oldest son, after being told no, probably to candy, um, told us, he, and I quote, we live in the house of no, no, no. That stung a little bit, because who wants to be living in the house of no, right? Except for that family, it has the last name no, and Mr. No and Mrs. No and all the little no's are living there happily in the house of no. That'd be a good Dr. Seuss book. Anyway, but um, here's the thing. We know from Scripture that Jesus said, how many of you would, if, you, if your son asked for bread, give them a rock? So it'd be good to flip that around and think about this. How many of you, if your child needed bread or your friend needed bread, would hand them, but they were asking for a rock, would hand them a rock? I'm super starving. Will you please give me a rock? No. <laughs> no one... No, you're not going to say, here's the rock, and also I'm not paying for your dental treatment. You're going to hand them bread. And they might be a little irritable about that because really what they wanted was the rock, but what they need is the bread. So in other words, sometimes the no's that we hear, the sort of obedience that we're being asked for, that is being asked of us, um, is actually giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want. The rock won't make people happy, make the hungry person happy, but the bread will in the long run. And we have to develop that habit, that virtue of accepting what is good, not which isn't necessarily what we want. So at times, um, our no's, the no's that we hear, the things that we shouldn't do, um, seem terrible, seem rough, but they're actually a divine yes to the right thing. In other words, no is a pathway to the right at times, the best, happiest yes. The thing about no and sometimes we have to, maybe we have to rethink our perspective on the gospel, on a perspective of the faith. The thing about no is that no one likes it. They did a study where they stuck people in an MRI. 
that was the whole study. They just stuck them in there and left them there to see what would happen. Now, they stuck them in the MRI, and then they would flash the word no in front of these people's eyes, right? For less than one second. And immediately, you'd see a rise in dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. The chem those chemicals inhibit your normal functioning of your brain. They impair logic, reason, processing, and communication, and generally make you feel bad. So we have to kind of think about God not as a cosmic no, but a yes to what is good, what will make us happy. So last week, Dan talked about feeling trapped. He talked about being feeling trapped by circumstances, by being trapped by finances, relationships, and so forth. So sometimes we are trapped because we don't trust God to feel, free us. Sometimes, though, we're also trapped because we don't realize that God is freeing, freeing us and that our feelings of being trapped are because our thoughts and actions are trapped. Sometimes it's our hearts that need to be freed, not necessarily our circumstances. Romans 6.18 um, says that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So what does Christian freedom mean then? It means that we're now slaves to righteousness. That sounds terrible. We're slaves to something? How can that be? Well, sin is really doing what we want for ourselves, while righteousness is doing what God asks of us even though it feels strange at first, uncomfortable, and a lot like slavery. And initially, sin feels like freedom. So if the worship team could come up here, I guess what I'm saying is I think that we're, we're leashed to righteousness when we follow Christ, but it doesn't necessarily feel good at right. In fact, I imagine it feels a lot like this dog when it comes to leashes. Not that dog. That dog looks very happy. There's another dog. There it is. I think that's how we feel about leashes, but where do you think that dog is? Do you think they're just dragging that dog around the house? Maybe. But probably they're trying to drag that, drag that dog outside to somewhere that dog really actually does want to be. The dog probably has no clue. So C.S. Lewis um, once told the following story about a dog whose leash was wrapped around a pole. He said this. You know, imagine this situation. You're taking your dog for a walk, and the dog's on a leash, and it runs around, and they get gets its leash caught on a pole, and it kind of wraps itself up, right? Um, he tries to go on the wrong side and gets his hoop head looped around the pole, and you can see he can't get free. And so you want to pull him back. So you try and pull him backwards because you want him to go forward, right? Because if he's wrapped up this way, he's got to go backwards. But the dog thinks that going forward is the way out. That's the way we're going to go. We're going to go, keep going around, around this pole until I get free. Um, but exactly... You know, if he's an obedient dog, he might resist, might listen, but kind of grumpily walk backwards around this pole because he thinks he's going the wrong way. Um, but the reality is, is only by yielding to the master that the dog can actually succeed in getting where he, what he wants. So Lewis says that um, as a master, what we say, what we think to the dog, the dog can't understand it, but you think, you know, if, if you really want to be free, I want that too. Um, you want to get forward along the road. Uh, I, I share in that desire. Forward is exactly where I want you to go. But if by freedom you mean using your will to pull against the collar, go force yourself forward in a way that won't actually lead you forward, I don't, I don't want that. Right? That will just continue to make you unhappy. Um, what I want is what you really want, not what you think you want. So he says that God not only understands, but shares in the desire, which is the root of all of our evil, which is a desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made us for no other purpose other than to enjoy it. But he knows, and I do not, how it can be really 
and permanently attained. He knows that our attempts to reach happiness are actually putting it further and further out of reach. And therefore, we can't really sympathize or agree with what we do um, because they're going in the, our actions are going in the wrong direction. So if we can refrain and submit to the collar of obedience, of following Christ, God will quickly guide us to where we want to get and have been wanting to get to all the time. So what is freedom? Freedom is the obedience to the things that make us most happy, will make us most happy. Freedom is not unfettered doing what we want, but it is going to become the person that God wants us to be, the fulfillment of who we are. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, and the catechism is just a short teaching on what the church believes. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We know God when we glorify him, and we glorify him when we obey him. And we know him, and, um, and when we glorify him, we're free to become the person he designed us to be. And we participate in our purpose through the enjoyment of who God is. And we participate in God's joy, which is complete freedom in goodness. So freedom is not being off the leash, but being free to be guided where we really want to go and fulfilling our purpose. So on this 4th of July weekend, as you think of freedom, practice obedience, practice the fruits of the Spirit, and be free the way that God intended you to be. So go celebrate freedom. Go celebrate with meat, fireworks, fireworks, meat, 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 and fireworks. But celebrate also in a way that leashes you to Christ. Practice the golden rule. Practice kindness towards others. And God will guide you to the sort of freedom that will make you truly and ecstatically happy. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for uh, the nation, a nation that grants us the ability to follow you. God, I pray that we would leash ourselves to you, that we would um, follow in the direction that you would have us go. And again, God, as we follow you to freedom, we thank you that you guide us to happiness. And I pray this in your name. Amen.